Podcast, setting controls to the heart of Saturn, with Adam Avison, George Bendo, Ian Harrison, Monique Henson, Aretina Mogosanu, Ian Morrison, and Benjamin Shaw. The Jodcast, September 2015 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm George, and joining me in the studio today are Adam and Ben. Hello. Hello. So, Ben, you've actually been working behind the scenes quite a bit, but this is actually your first time uh, recording. Would you like to tell us a little bit about your research real quickly? Yep. Um, I'm working in the Pulsar Group. I'm a first-year doctoral researcher, and I'm studying noise processes in pulsars. Um, they should be very accurate clocks flashing in the sky, allowing us to test gravity. But some of them are better clocks than others, and I'm trying to understand why the worse ones are worse, so we can subtract that noise and hopefully detect gravitational waves. Ooh, cool. that sounds really cool. We might invite you back in a few years to do an interview. In the show this time, Monique interviews Dr. Chris Gordon about dark matter, and Ian Morrison and Haratina Mogusanu take a look at what's happening in the September night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Ian Harrison with this month's news. In the news this month, scrambled information escapes from Stephen Hawking, sunspot record is recalibrated, and names on Pluto generate controversy. A stir was created this month by a short talk from Stephen Hawking at the KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. In the talk, Hawking claimed to have new insight which may solve a 40-year-old problem known as the black hole information paradox. The paradox is a consequence of one of modern physics' most knotty and notorious dilemmas, how to reconcile the two excellent but apparently incompatible theories of quantum mechanics and general relativity. Black holes are a stiff test for theoretical physicists, as they are one of the few systems we can imagine in which both general relativity, or GR, and the quantum world become comparatively important, due to black holes' combination of both extremely high mass and tiny size. Hawking himself was one of the first to elucidate the problem, when, in a 1975 work, he pointed out that a black hole, as described by GR, sitting in a space surrounded by quantum fields, would slowly radiate particles and shrink, eventually evaporating completely. The reason that this situation creates a problem is that it is difficult to decide what happens to the information which describes the system. In quantum mechanics, the total amount of information in any system must remain the same, with information neither being created nor destroyed. So, what happens to the information inside the black hole when it evaporates? According to quantum theories, it cannot simply disappear, nor can it be carried away by the emitted particles, as this would involve copying the information, creating more than there was before, another forbidden process. Something must give. Either black holes do not destroy information, meaning modifications to GR are necessary, or information is not conserved, and it is quantum mechanics which needs its foundations shaking. Hawking was, for a long time, a supporter of GR in this contest, and made a bet with two other prominent physicists, Kip Thorne, who supported Hawking, and John Preskill, that it was GR which was right. In 1997, Hawking actually conceded defeat in the bet, and provided Preskill with the prize of a baseball encyclopedia, from which information may be retrieved at will. Hawking conceded due to new work on so-called holographic theories, which propose that physical systems which exist in spaces with n dimensions can be equally as well described by sets of equations which exist in only n minus 1 dimensions. In the case of black holes, this means the three-dimensional interior space of the black hole being described by a two-dimensional system on its surface. The holographic idea sounds fanciful, but it was shown by Juan Maldacena, then of Harvard, now of Princeton University, that such theories are correct in at least a limited set of circumstances, and I, for one, am prepared to trust Juan Maldacena. Later work has unfortunately further muddied the waters, for example, with the firewall problem, which states that halfway through a black hole's evaporation, the holographic surface can no longer contain enough information to describe the interior. Some theorists believe this could cause a wall of fire to form around the black hole, frying anything else which tries to fall in, 
and avoiding consuming its information. The air of mystery surrounding the problem and Hawking's celebrity has meant that much interest has been generated by the talk in Stockholm, even if it was very light on actual details on his new work and the problem. Hawking apparently suggested that chaotic mixing of information inside a black hole both scrambles the information falling in and disturbs the black hole's surface, allowing some information to break free. This would mean that black holes were not truly black, but merely grey, with some kind of escape possible. Any escapee would still be significantly mangled, however, and unlikely to find much interesting left on the outside, with evaporation of a sun-sized black hole taking some 10 to the power of 67 years, far longer than the 10 to the power of 10 years our universe has so far been in existence. Response from astronomers and physicists to the news has been cautious, with most wishing to wait for technical details rather than commenting on second-hand relaying of a brief presentation. Professor Matt Strassler of Harvard University commented on his blog that he does not expect the puzzle to be resolved soon, and points out the dangers of weighting scientists' words by their level of celebrity, saying that the resolution will probably come from a young physicist you've never heard of, or from a person not yet even born. Also this month, Astronomers working at the Royal Observatory of Belgium in Brussels have recalibrated historical sunspot data, casting doubt on the idea that increasing solar activity may have contributed to Earth's warming climate in the past 200 years. Sunspots, dark-looking patches on the sun's surface at points of concentrated magnetic fields, have long been known to have an 11-year cycle in the numbers observed. Astronomers have also tracked their numbers over longer periods in what is the longest-running observation in science, having been started by Galileo in 1610. There were previously two premier records of sunspot activity, the world or international record and the group record. Differences in the methods and personnel used for counting spots over the centuries mean that it can sometimes be difficult to determine the true numbers and the two records previously disagreed in some key aspects, such as the presence of a long-term upward trend in numbers apparently coinciding with climate change here on Earth and tentatively called the Grand Modern Maximum. The new work by the Belgium astronomers has recalibrated the datasets, for example, taking into account the failing eyesight of one ageing 19th century Swiss observer, with their new V2.0 record showing no evidence for the grand maximum. Frédéric Klett, one of the authors of the work, stated there has been nothing exceptional about the level of solar activity over the time period. This work has proved controversial, meeting disapproval from the previous maintainers of the international sunspot record. It does, however, bring the data into line with a third separate record, that of the US National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The change will also be highly significant, requiring climate models used to predict future trends in weather to take into account a much decreased contribution from sunspot activity. And finally, disapproving looks have been exchanged this month between the team leading NASA's New Horizons mission to Pluto and the section of the International Astronomical Union, or IAU, which deals with the naming of features on astronomical objects. Many features identified on Pluto and its companion moon Charon by New Horizons have been named by public vote on the ourpluto.org website, run by the New Horizons team. However, formal recognition of some of these names is expected to meet resistance from the IAU, with Representative Rosalie Lope commenting, Frankly, we would have preferred that the New Horizons team had approached us before putting all these informal names everywhere. The principal investigator of New Horizons... Alan Stern of NASA, has previous with the IAU, having criticised the handling of Pluto's declassification as a planet, and also with informal naming of extrasolar planets and regions of Mars. It remains to be seen whether the IAU will allow the names of Cthulhu, Spock, Kirk and Vader to sit alongside more sober ones on Pluto and Charon. Thanks for that, Ian. 
Now, Monique interviews Dr. Chris Gordon about dark matter, self-annihilation in the galactic center. Hello, I'm here with Chris Gordon from the University of Canterbury, New Zealand. Hello, Chris. Hello. Uh, it's great to have you here on the Jodcast, which I believe is your first time. Yes, that's right. It's great to have you here. So you just gave a great talk on dark matter self-annihilation in the galactic centre. So what evidence is there for this possible phenomenon? So uh, recently the whole sky has been imaged by a telescope known as the Large Area Telescope on the uh, Fermi satellite. And what they've done is they've taken into account all the known astrophysical sources, like the diffuse galactic background, uh, which comes from the cosmic rays in the galaxy interacting with the interstellar medium. And then they've also taken into account uh, the point sources, uh, such as the giant black hole uh, at our galactic center, Sagittarius A-star. There is a, a point source of gamma rays coming from that area. And even after taking into account those known astrophysical sources, they still see this spherically shaped excess of gamma rays come in from that galactic center region. And the way that excess varies with energy is consistent with what you would expect from two dark matter particles coming together and self-annihilating. And so that's one possibility. But then there's also other astrophysical alternatives that are being looked into. So we often hear mm. people talk about cold dark matter. Is this mm. idea of self-interacting dark matter consistent with what we normally hear about cold dark matter? Yes. The usual models that we look at for this excess are based on models which would fit the usual cold dark matter criteria, except often when one model's cold dark matter, you say there's no interaction between the dark matter particles. But here what we do is we allow this weak interaction, which means you could occasionally have two dark matter particles come together and self-annihilate into standard model particles. And this happens at such a low level that it wouldn't affect the usual cold dark matter predictions, but it just would have this extra feature where you have very high densities of dark matter. You do see some evidence of standard model particles being created there. Okay, so it is, it is still consistent with our idea of dark matter. Yes, that's right. Can you clarify what do you mean when you say you think they might be weakly interacting? So in particle physics, you have different types of force. So there's the electromagnetic force and then there's the strong nuclear force. And of course, there's gravity. And then there's also the weak nuclear force. And so we have seen no sign of the electromagnetic or the strong nuclear force from dark matter. But it is possible that there's this weakly interacting force, which would explain the amount of dark matter we have today. Because in the early universe, the dark matter would be in thermal equilibrium with the primordial plasma. And then at some stage when the density dropped due to the expansion of the universe, it froze out. And so if it had typical weakly interacting cross-sections, then it would freeze out to give us the amount of dark matter that we see today. So it can also explain some of the physics of the early universe as well. Well, the dark matter is a very small component in the early universe um, just because the radiation density is dropping like the size of the universe to the power of minus four, whereas the dark matter is dropping like the size of the universe to the power of minus three. So in the early universe, the dark matter is a very small component. It does kind of explain what's going on in the early universe, but if you had this weakly interacting dark matter or not, or if it was just something which wasn't weakly interacting, like an axiom model for dark matter, you would still essentially have the same early universe evolution. Okay, that's so do we have any ideas of what kind of particles these dark matter particles could be? So in this weakly interacting uh, massive particle, or WIMP for short, there are several proposals. And one popular one is that it could be related to this idea of supersymmetry in particle physics, where it's thought that all the standard matter particles have supersymmetric partner particles, but they could have different masses to their standard matter particle counterparts, because otherwise we would have seen them already. So these supersymmetric particles are being looked for at the Large Hadron Collider. And one proposal is the uh, lightest one of these could be uh, the dark matter particle. So you mentioned that they're looking for mm. the Large Hadron Collider. Do you think mm. we might see them sometime soon? The trouble is there's a lot of flexibility in the models. And so there certainly are models available which say, you know, once they now they've got this new increased energy they've just started running at. So they could be seen at that stage. 
but there's no guarantee that they even exist. And if we don't see them, it could just be that they're at much larger masses, not accessible to the Large Hadron Collider. So we just have to keep building bigger and bigger hospitals. Yes, I guess so, until eventually they cost too much, I suppose, (laughs) or hopefully we eventually find something. (sighs) (laughs) So you've already talked about how we can detect those in astronomy. Are there other possible explanations for this X-ray of gamma ray signals that we're seeing? Yes, so this excess of gamma rays, another popular explanation is it's due to a population of millisecond pulsars in that sort of several hundred parsecs of the galactic centre region. And these could be sufficiently faint that they wouldn't have been resolved into individual millisecond pulsars yet by the Fermilat uh, instrument or radio observations. And then, because there's so many of them in that relatively small area of the sky, it just appears as a kind of continuous spherical signal. And how can we distinguish between these two possible things it could be? So I think one way uh, would be to take more powerful telescopes and observe that area to actually try uh, resolve the individual millisecond pulsars. And so there's several current radio telescopes that may be able to do it, depending on the conditions in that galactic centre region. But if the conditions aren't favourable, it may require a future telescope known as the Square Kilometre Array to find them. So that's the next generation of radio telescopes, really, this quite contrary. That's, I believe, coming about in the next five or ten years or so, and it's going to be quite revolutionary, understanding uh, its sensitivities. Yeah, let's hope so, anyway. <clears throat> so it would have to be millisecond pulsars. I think we hear about pulsars, mm. you know, these neutron stars, which have these jets coming out of them, but why mm. specifically would it have to be a millisecond pulsar? And what's different about millisecond mm. pulsars? So there's a couple of differences. So first of all, in order to explain this excess, you'd need the point sources to be quite tightly concentrated around the galactic centre region. And because the millisecond pulsars occur when you have these binary systems, that is they're more likely to be more sort of centrally peaked in their space distribution. And additionally, if you look at the spectrum of the gamma rays coming from this region, it fits well with the millisecond pulsars that have been imaged in other areas of the sky. So so millisecond pulsars look differently on the skies? Yes, they have a slightly different spectrum. The way the number of gamma rays varies with energy. Okay, so Mm. they're a more plausible Mm. candidate. So Prior to the Fermi telescope finding this excess, were Mm. people actively looking for it at the centre of the galaxy, or is it just something that came up? Well, at the centre of the galaxy, it's been known as a good place to look for dark matter annihilation because the dark matter annihilation needs two particles to come together, and so it depends on the density squared of dark matter. And so the galactic centre is a local maximum in terms of the density of dark matter, and also it's relatively close by. So if you work out the expected signal, that would be one of the brightest areas if the dark matter is self-annihilating. The only trouble is that there is a lot of astrophysical sources of gamma rays in that area of the sky as well, so that's the downside to that area. So whilst there's a lot of dark matter there, there's also lots of other stuff. Yes, so it's a bit of a trade-off. So Really, people will only believe any signal of dark matter self-annihilating when it's also seen in the dwarf seroidals, which are these satellite galaxies which have much less other astrophysical sources of gamma rays. And so if you see gamma rays of the right uh, properties coming from there, it'll be more plausible uh, that that's really dark matter self-annihilating. So they'd really confirm this kind of... Yes, and so far they've looked there and haven't seen any uh, gamma rays coming from the neighbouring dwarf steroidals. And so it could be, though, that the sensitivities aren't good enough yet to detect it from those regions. So those are going to be improved. And after another five years, if they still don't see any, that would be another way of ruling out a dark matter explanation of the excess in the galactic centre. Is it probable that we would see this emission from the dwarf seroidals? Because you mentioned that to see it, you kind of need an area that's got lots of dark matter. And I would imagine that a dwarf seroidal would have less dark matter than the centre of our galaxy. Mm. Yeah, so it is fainter than the galactic centre. And so that's why it's still possible that we've seen it in the galactic centre and not in the dwarf seroidals. But we can estimate what the plausible ranges of density for dark matter is in the centre and for the dwarf seroidals. And from that, we can see within another five years, it would be implausible to see it in the galactic centre, but not in the dwarf seroidals. Mm. 
So possibly with the next generation of gamma-ray telescopes, we might see. Yeah, it could be a next generation, or even just with this Fermi Large Area Telescope, because they all should carry on for another five years, so they may see it in that. Okay, so just got to wait for some more data. Yes, you could always say that there is some dark matter annihilation going on, but it's just at too low a level to detect either in the dwarf steroidals or the galactic center. But then we would just be able to say the current excess that we see is not due to dark matter self-annihilation. Okay. So would you be able to talk about a little bit, I mean, it's not necessarily your area, but there are other ways that we might be looking for possible dark matter candidates? Yeah, so there's several approaches. And so one way is to look for dark matter scattering off atomic nuclei. And that area of study is known as direct detection. And so they have these detectors usually in very deep mines to screen out cosmic ray signals. And if they see something scatter off a their detector, which is consistent with the dark matter properties, that would be another approach to detect dark matter. Okay, uh, so it's interesting to see here about mm. the complementary approaches. So this is kind of what you're working on at the moment, so mm. what, the dark matter annihilation in the centre of galaxies. What are you looking to work on in the future, or what's kind of your next thing? So at the moment, I think there's still a few loose ends to tie up with this project, and I think we still need to quantify whether there's some other astrophysical explanation associated with this diffuse galactic background, which involves just the standard sea of cosmic rays in our galaxy interacting with the interstellar medium. It could be that we haven't totally taken into account all the uncertainty in that modeling, and that may still change to some extent the amount of excess that is seen in the centre. But will you ever know if you've correctly modelled all of the galactic emission? It is going to be hard. It is a hard problem. And so we can just try and look at ways of improving it. And then hopefully, eventually, either we'll be able to confirm that the excess is due to millisecond pulsars using the radio telescopes or just rule out the dark matter interpretation with the future Fermi data. <laughs> It sounds like a bit of an uphill battle. Yes, definitely still quite a lot of work to do. Um, well, it's been great to hear mm. from you today. Um, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for that, Monique. Now we come to a part of the show where we fit in all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. Okay, so for my odd and end, I have uh, brought a new discovery. The closest collisional ring galaxy to our own has been found um, at a distance of 30 million light years. Uh, and that's seven times closer than the nearest previous collisional ring galaxy, which was the Cartwheel Galaxy. What is a collisional ring galaxy? These are a, a rare phenomenon created by the sort of bullseye collision of two galaxies of, of different mass. And during this collision, the shock waves created um, compress the gas within each galaxy and kick off a new period of star formation, creating a, an intense ring of emission from the star formation. And it makes the galaxy look like a Catherine wheel type firework. This new galaxy was discovered by Professor Quentin Parker of the University of Hong Kong and Dr. Albert Zilstra of the University of Manchester, so right here in our department, plus a bunch of other um, astronomers, including our George Bender, who's presenting this Jodcast. Um All I did was really um, calculate dust masses for the science paper. You were there, bold as brass in the, in the author list. Um, the discovery came during a H-alpha emission survey looking for planetary nebula, um, which is what um, Albert and Quentin typically study. So this was quite a nice serendipitous discovery, which we sometimes get in astronomy. The new object has been dubbed Catherine's Wheel, so Catherine with a K and apostrophe S, as opposed to Catherine Wheel like the firework, which is the Catherine with a C, and it is so named because that's Albert's wife's name, so she's quite lucky. And uh, one of the implications of, of the discovery is this, it being so much closer than the previous known detection is that this might mean that these kinds of objects are slightly more common than previously thought. Uh, so the news article I found uh, for this podcast was a press release by Hubble talking about how Ryan Foley at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign found, quote, supernovae in the wrong places 
at the wrong time. And the news article, I think, really understates things. If you go look at the science paper, it really emphasizes how weird this situation is. So the first line from the news release from Space Telescope Science Institute is, scientists have been fascinated by a series of unusual exploding stars outcast beyond the typical cozy confines of their galaxies. When you read the science article, you realize just how unusual these exploding stars are, their supernovae, and uh, how far out they've been flung. So in a typical spiral galaxy, uh, you would actually find uh, supernovae very close to uh, the locations where they formed. And so they would uh, typically be found within the plane of the spiral galaxy and the uh, disk of the spiral galaxy can extend out kind of up to uh, 30, 40, maybe even 50 million light years or something like that. And the types of supernovae that you see are either, one, the really massive hydrogen-burning stars using up all of their hydrogen, uh, first imploding and then exploding. This actually happens like a few million years after the stars form. Uh, so it's uh, they aren't going to go that far from where they formed. The other type of thing that you find is uh, you have two stars in the binary system, a white dwarf and a much bigger star. They're too close to each other, so the gravity of the white dwarf pulls the atmosphere off of the other star, and when the white dwarf gets too uh, massive, it actually gravitationally collapses into a neutron star, and that produces an explosion as well. These supernovae that are being picked up, or that have been found by uh, Ryan Foley, are not like either of those types of supernovae. They're something completely different. They have a weird spectra. They're underluminous, uh, so they, they're relatively faint compared to the other things. There's like a lot of calcium in the spectrum, uh, which just kind of implies that the uh, uh, atmospheres, these things are just different and weird. Like I said, it's like uh, you find most ordinary supernovae kind of within planes of galaxies which extend out to 50 million uh, light years or so. These things are kind of found anywhere from 100 million light years to close to 500 million light years away from uh, the centers of the closest galaxies at that point. If you describe something in distances that large relative to our own galaxy, you would no longer say that it's within the Milky Way galaxy. Or if it was, it was something like far out in the halo. And these stars are also moving very fast relative to the centers of the galaxies that uh, potentially ejected them. So these things are rather weird. The Hubble Space Telescope has actually been observing these things uh, since 2000. Um, they're originally just another serendipitous or accidental discovery. Uh, there have since been uh, follow-up observations with uh, other telescopes and also kind of an examination of other data as well, and there have been a total of 13 of these types of objects found. Uh, Ryan Foley has put forth a proposal for one how these objects got to where they are, and two, what's producing the supernova explosion. So first, these supernovae are found primarily around elliptical galaxies, which we, um, which astronomers have a theory are formed by the merger of two spiral galaxies. A lot of astronomers also think that every galaxy has a supermassive black hole at the center. And so it's been suggested that these supernovae moving at really high speeds away from the galaxies may be things that were ejected gravitationally when the two supermassive black holes in the two spiral galaxies uh, that form the elliptical galaxies merge together. So that provides a mechanism for getting these supernovae out there. And then the question is, what are they? So the proposal there is that uh, they are actually formed by two white dwarf stars merging together, or one white dwarf star stripping the material off another white dwarf star, both stars uh, being in the binary star system. So originally they would start off either as hydrogen burning stars or maybe they start off as white dwarf stars when they're ejected from the galaxy. But they start off in a stable orbit where they're very far away from each other. Now, over time, the orbit gravitationally decays and so the stars move closer together. And eventually one of them gets uh, so close to the other 
that one of them strips the atmosphere off the other star, and that leads to an explosion when one of the white dwarf stars gets too massive, and uh, hence produces this rather weird type of supernovae. So would the, the stars that were ejected from the two merging galaxies have been at the white dwarf stage when they left, or is that not clear? That's not clear, but I suspect in this scenario it doesn't have to be the case. You could have two rather ordinary hydrogen-burning stars, main-sequence stars, mm -hmm. which just in very, well, not very far apart orbit, but in an orbit far enough apart that, like, uh, uh, one of them is not uh, stripping the atmosphere off the other one. So what's important is that the orbits uh, decay over time, uh, which can happen via various methods. Uh, we've talked about gravitational radiation from... Uh, pulsars and binary star systems, uh, that seems like a possibility. There could also be other uh, mechanisms as well, maybe just ordinary tidal forces applied over uh, hundreds, millions of years, mm -hmm. which could uh, lead to uh, this type of phenomena as well. So, my odd and end um, has a, a slightly sad um, undertone to it, although it uh, has resulted in some quite nice pictures. Cassini um, our mission, our flagship NASA mission that has been um, touring the Saturn system for 11 years and one month um, to date, has just finished its final visit to Dione, which is one of Saturn's largest moons. The mission will end in 2017, and on the 17th of August, it passed about 500 kilometres above the surface of Dione. Um, and that will be its last visit. Um, it's been to Dione before, it visited in 2010, 2011, um, in June this year and on the 17th of August. And it has taken a number of images of the surface and these images are absolutely spectacular. They were taken from a range of altitudes from a few hundred kilometres to a few tens of thousands of kilometres. And in the close ones you can see just how cratered this surface is. Um, it's extremely strongly potmarked. Um, indicating that it's a very old surface, there's been no tectonic activity that's been replenishing the surface and smoothing it out. And these very close images have resolutions of about 10 metres per pixel. That is sufficient resolution such that you could make out a house on the surface of Dione. So if you have to see any houses, then get in touch with NASA because there's something wrong. Somebody will. <laughs> somebody will, yes. I have no doubt that somebody will. There are some wider shots showing some, some of uh, Dione's largest craters um, and there are some extremely wide shots which show a brighter background. Um, normally in moon pictures you would expect the background to be black. These have got quite a bright background interrupted by some dark bands and that is in fact Saturn providing a really lovely backdrop to these images and the black bands are Saturn's rings passing across the image. There is one particular image that I really like which um, the position of Cassini uh, the Sun and Dione put uh, Dione in a crescent phase and you can really see just how um, non-smooth this surface is. Some of these craters have really tall ridges, you can see some deep trenches and if you have a half-decent printer some of these are really worthy of a frame in your house and um, that's certainly something I'll be doing. Um, but we didn't just go there to take pretty pictures, we've done some science as well. Um, there's been some gravity experiments to try and map the internal structure of Dione by um, looking at its uh, its density profile. And there's been an infrared camera as well that is mapping the distribution of heat um, across the surface, looking for areas that are more susceptible for trapping heat than others. Cassini is moving on now. It's heading towards Enceladus um, for one of its final visits there. This year, um, its tour dates include two more flybys of Titan and three more of Enceladus and then it will carry on um, next year and in 2017 it will fly through Saturn's rings through the top of the atmosphere and plunge itself towards the heart of Saturn where it will be crushed by pressure but Cassini being Cassini it will send data back regardless and we'll have, uh, we'll have numbers coming right to the very end. Apparently it was chosen, this, this particular death for Cassini was chosen to prevent biological contaminations of the moon by any organic material that might have left with Cassini from the Earth. Um, Enceladus has um, a heat source inside it due to tidal interactions with Saturn. It has um, water, we think, underneath the surface, and some images, previous Cassini images, have um, detected organic materials on there as well. So if we do want to go back and look for life on Enceladus in the future, 
we of course need to know that we didn't put it there by dropping Cassini onto it. Even though we've dropped Huygens on Titan. Titan's probably very unlikely to support life, given the horrible conditions. I mean, it's eerily Earth-like, but I don't think it's likely to support life. It's just too cold for... It's too cold. It's. Um, we're also kind of assuming that life has to function at the same temperature as the Earth, although it's like uh, the arguments which I've seen in favor of that kind of argue that um, you have a lot of chemical uh, interactions which occur at uh, kind of Earth temperatures, which you wouldn't see at like Titan surface temperatures anyway. So I guess, yeah, I guess I could buy into that argument. We've also dropped things on Mars and on Venus, now comets. Yeah, I think they're probably being a little more careful than they are with the uh, other planets, but still, it's it's cool that uh, they've got enough faith that there's something interesting happening at Enceladus that they're willing to take these precautions. But it's going to be sad when Cassini finally plunges into Saturn. I think I will be, uh, I will be unhappy when that happens, but still happy at all the all the images we've got back from it. It, it is, as far as I'm concerned, this is probably one of the best things we've ever done in terms of planetary science, and everybody should remember where they were the day that Huygens was separated from Cassini. And now, for someone who isn't visiting the Jodcast for the last time, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. The Night Sky for September 2015. As the evenings draw in, the stars we see after sunset stay pretty much the same for a couple of months. And so, high in the southwest, you'll see what is called a summer triangle. The three stars, Altair in Aquila, Vega in Lyra, and Deneb in Cygnus. The brightest stars of Cygnus the Swan make up what is called the Northern Cross. The faintest of these is called Albireo, and it's not very obvious, but if you look at it through a telescope, you see a lovely double star, sort of one somewhat golden, the other bluish. It's a beautiful colour contrast. Below the Summer Triangle, a tiny but rather sweet little constellation, Delphinus the Dolphin. Moving across, so towards the south later in the evening, we have the great square of Pegasus the four stars making up the square, the body of the winged horse, which is upside down, of course. Starting from the top left star, which is Alpha Rats, which actually is in Andromeda, it's Alpha Andromedae, moving one star to the left, round to the right a bit, to a second star, which is called Mirac, and then turning sharp right, going two stars width, you can come to the Andromeda Galaxy M31, which on a dark, clear night and transparent sky you can see with your unaided eye. Moving in the opposite direction from Mirac, about the same amount as M31, is the galaxy M33, much harder to spot, but on a very transparent night with good binoculars you may well be able to find it. Above we have Cassiopeia, the open W, and down to its left, that's over towards the east, we have Perseus. Between the two, it's where in fact the Milky Way is running along, the two wonderful clusters, it's called the Perseus Double Cluster. They're called NGC 869 and 884. But they can be picked out with binoculars and are a beautiful sight in a small telescope. Well, what about the planets? Let's start with Jupiter. It passed behind the Sun, that's called Superior Conjunction, on the 26th of August. So it's now a morning object, rising shortly before the Sun at the beginning of September, but increasingly earlier as the month progresses. So it'll be best seen at month's end when it will lie some 18 degrees above the northeast horizon at sunrise. The size of Jupiter's disk is increasing slightly, it's about 31 arc seconds, so you should be able to see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere and the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. In contrast, Saturn can be seen after sunset low in the southwest. It lies in the eastern part of Libra, moving slowly away from the wide double star Alpha Libri, shining at a magnitude of plus 0.6. 
An hour after sunset, it will lie just 10 degrees above the horizon, so the atmosphere will limit our view of its 16 arc-second disk. And by month's end, it will only be a few degrees above the horizon at sunset. So really, the first couple of weeks of this month is our last chance to observe it for a few months until it passes behind the sun and is again visible in the morning sky. But the ring system is now opened out to 24.3 degrees. That's pretty good. So if you can see it, it's a lovely view. And you might also spot Titan, its largest satellite. Mercury can just be seen above the western horizon for the first few days of the month. It reaches greatest elongation from the sun on the 4th of September. Shining at magnitude plus 0.1. It'll be quite a challenging object as the ecliptic is at quite a shallow angle to the horizon, and it'll be lost in twilight by mid-month before it passes in front of the sun, that's inferior conjunction, on the 30th of the month. Mars, along with Venus and Jupiter, is a pre-dawn object, lying in Leo, not far from Regulus, Alpha Leonis, which has a magnitude of plus 1.4. On the 25th, the salmon pink planet will lie just 47 arc minutes from the blue star Regulus, so making a very nice colour contrast. Shining at magnitude plus 1.8, its disk is just 3.8 arc seconds across, so no details will be seen on its surface. Venus rises in the northeast in the pre-dawn sky, an hour and a half before the sun at the start of September, but this increases to four hours by month's end, as Venus is moving further away in angle from the sun. Its magnitude reaches minus 4.8 during the third week of the month, that's the brightest it ever gets, and it will show a thin crescent, 9% illuminated, 52 arc second across disk. Well, what about some highlights? Neptune came into opposition, that's when it's nearest the Earth, on the 29th of August, so it will be seen well this month. And on the night sky page on the Jodrell Bank website, you can find the chart to show you where to look. Its magnitude is plus 7.9, so it should be easily spotted in binoculars, lying in the constellation Aquarius. When due south, it rises to an elevation of about 27 degrees, so somewhat above the murk of the atmosphere. On September the 5th, before dawn, at about 05.30 BST, Aldebaran, which is the orange-red star that we see in the direction of the Hyades cluster, will be occulted by the moon. That will happen at around 0530 BST, but it will vary a bit across the country, so you need to be watching a little while before that. Now, if you've got a telescope and a mount which is actually tracking Aldebaran as it passes behind the moon, you might be able to see it reappear from behind the unlit lunar disk at 0710 in what will then be a bright daylight sky. Before dawn on September the 10th, you can see Venus and a thin crescent moon. You'll need a good, low, unobstructed horizon towards the northeast. And then, should it be clear, you should be able to spot an 8% lit, very thin crescent moon, just 2 degrees to the upper left of Venus, which will then be shining at magnitude minus 4.6. On the 18th, an hour after sunset, looking southwest, you might well be able to see and spot Saturn with its nicely open rings, again not far from a waxing crescent moon. On the 25th, one hour before sunrise, Venus, Mars and Jupiter will be together in Leo, and that is the morning when Mars will be less than a degree, just to the left of Regulus in Leo. That will make a very nice planetary grouping. Up to their right will lie Venus, which will be dominating the morning sky, whilst lying well below Regulus, you may well be able to see Mars. Perhaps the real highlight of this month, and let's hope it's clear, on the morning before dawn on the 28th of September, there'll be a total eclipse of the moon. And not just any moon, 
It's the 2015 harvest moon. It's also a supermoon to boot, with an angular diameter of 33.5 arc minutes, which is the largest apparent diameter of the year. The full eclipse lasts for 3 hours and 20 minutes, with totality starting at 0311 BST and ending at 0423. It's over an hour later. The moon is passing through the southern part of the umbra, so we should expect the southern limb to appear brighter than the northern limb. At the midpoint of the eclipse, at 0347 BST, the northern limb just reaches the central part of the umbra. And then the moon will be lying at an elevation of 27 degrees above the southwest horizon. Finally, I do sometimes and try to give you some interesting objects to observe on the moon. Just have a look on the night sky page. And this month, on September the 4th and the 21st, I've highlighted the Alpine Valley. That's a rift that runs across the northern part of the Apennine Mountains, not far from the crater Plato. The valley is about 7 miles wide and 79 miles long. A thin rill runs along its length. That's very hard to spot. It's quite a challenge to observe. But nevertheless, this region is a very interesting part of the lunar surface. Well, let's just hope it's clear on the morning of the 28th and we all have a chance to see a total eclipse of the moon. Thanks for that, Ian. And now for our southern hemisphere, here's Haratini Mogusanu with the night sky where you are. Welcome to Aotearoa, New Zealand, where the sea surrounds us from all directions, the sky is darker than dark, and the stars are very bright. My name is Haritina Mogoshanu, and today I will be your storyteller from Space Place at Carter Observatory in the Southern Hemisphere. Here in New Zealand, we are surrounded by a water world. The Pacific Ocean holds the dark night sky which comes all the way down to the horizon and the only signposts of the night are the patterns of the stars. We call these asterisms. The modern constellations, which are areas, patches of the sky, just like countries are on Earth, take their name from them. Asterisms are dot-to-dot doodles, patterns on the celestial firmament. Not too many things seem familiar here in the Southern Hemisphere to those of us who started our journey from the North. Not even these patterns. Besides, everything is upside down to what we knew from home. For instance, as the autumn takes its frightful place in the Northern Hemisphere, here in the South we prepare for springtime. And there is more. The sun here goes through the northern part of the sky, moving from right to left on the ecliptic, as opposite to the southern part in the northern hemisphere. This makes the angle of the shadow in the morning to look just like the shadow of the other hemisphere's evening sky. Of course, here in the southern hemisphere, the sun still rises in the east and sets in the west. But if you just arrived here and it feels like evening in the morning... Don't let them tell you it is only jet lag. And as I was saying, not just the light, but also the star patterns look different here. I had to get over the fact that everything as I knew it is upside down in the night sky and to really get my bearings here in the water world, I had to unlearn everything I knew about the so-called western night sky. For instance, the fact that for the Polynesians, the same stars can be used to make up to three different asterisms, depending on the time of the year, came as a huge surprise. I knew that in Europe, for example, where the people had to survive months of snow, the ancients foresaw the future with the help of the zodiacal constellations. But the zodiacal constellations were made of the same stars, and for millennia, the repetitive patterns were the best calendar we used to tell the seasons over and over. This is so ingrained in our collective conscious that some people use these constellations of the zodiac even today to tell the future. But isn't that what a calendar does anyway? It peers into the future. 
For Polynesians, these patterns changed from season to season, telling the story of their journeys. Some of their constellations, or more correctly asterisms, are huge, even stretching onto half of the sky. Some other things were constant for them too. For example, as they were roaming through the Pacific Ocean, the Polynesians observed that each island of the enormous water world had a different zenith star. They used those stars to pinpoint these islands to find their way back across the vastness of the ocean. And their descendants, who reached further south, the Maori, which translates as normal people in Polynesian language, assigned not just one zenith star, but an entire asterism constellation to the newly found island they called Aotearoa, the land of the long white cloud. This constellation, asterism, is the fishing hook of Maui, the Matawa Maui, whose stars coincide with the stars of what we know as Scorpius. The legend goes that the very first navigator, Maui, landed on the South Island, which to Maori had the shape of a canoe. From there, Maui cast his famous fish hook, the zenith constellation of New Zealand, to catch the North Island from the sea. But as the center of the Milky Way rises above the horizon, and with it the asterism of the fish hook, as seen from the South Island, this would show up exactly in the northeast. This is the direction of the North Island of New Zealand, the island that to Maori looked like a stingray, the fish. And as one of the modern Maori navigators, Hoturua Barclay Kerr, was telling me, as they navigate their waka haurua, the double hole canoes, along the shore of the South Island, the curvature of the earth makes the North Island look as if it's popping out of the sea, as if pulled by the fish hook, which would rise in the sky, lifting with it island and galaxy all together. But even for a celestial charmed fish hook, the North Island was a heavy fish. The fishing line snapped and the hook flung into the sky. As the evening falls in Aotearoa at the beginning of spring, just after sunset, you can find the fish hook up, stuck at the center of the Milky Way at Zenith. All you have to do is to lift up your head and look up. At the beginning of springtime here, the Milky Way spans the sky from north to south going through zenith. From there, the fish hook now slowly starts to drag the Milky Way down from the sky and towards the western horizon, all night long, so that night after night the center of the galaxy appears lower and lower in the evening sky. Here, in the Southern Hemisphere, we are very lucky to see the Milky Way in all its brightness and beauty. Many of the brightest stars are scattered along or near it. Starting from north is Albireo, the beautiful orange and blue double star in the constellation of Cygnus, or the Northern Cross. On the left-hand side and close to the Milky Way lays Vega, the fifth brightest star in the sky. It is due north at dusk and sets in the late evening. Vega is 52 times brighter than the sun and 25 light years away. On the right-hand side, a celestial dolphin is flipping from the galactic river, revealing its two famous stars, Swalochin and Rotanev, the anagram of the astronomer Nicolaus Venator, who wanted never to be forgotten. Just a few degrees higher up in the sky than the dolphin, the eagle is flying Altair towards the galactic river. Keep lifting your head up and follow the Milky Way. If you have a telescope powerful enough, you will find Pluto right there near the teapot handle in Sagittarius. But at 14th magnitude, you would need a large aperture telescope of 10 inches or more to see it if Pluto is not an easy target. The fishhook of Maui in Scorpius, it's home of the bright star red giant Antares or Rehua in Maori. And in between Sagittarius and Scorpius, there are beautiful deep sky objects and now it's a great time in the Southern Hemisphere to hunt for them. They include the Lagoon Nebula or Messier 8, 
the Omega Nebula, or Messier 17, also known as the Horseshoe Nebula, or Swan Nebula, and the Trifid Nebula, or Messier 20, a large nebula containing some very young, hot stars. To find directions in the Southern Hemisphere, all we need to do is to follow the arch of the Milky Way. On it, midway down the southwest sky, almost opposite Altair, are the pointers, Beta and Alpha Centauri. They point down to Crux, the Southern Cross. There are about 27 ways to find south here, and most of them involve the Southern Cross. As a circumpolar constellation at the beginning of the spring's evening sky, crooks appear almost in the 3 o'clock position on the 60 degrees declination circle. Inside it, the brilliant jewel box, discovered by Nicolas-Louis de Lacaille and baptized so by John Herschel, or NGC 4755, is an open cluster of stars. At the center of it, a blue giant, a red giant, and another blue giant star is aligned to make the more modern asterism of the traffic light. But of course, you will need a telescope to see this. Nothing beats the southern sky when it comes to globular clusters. Starting with the easy one, Omega Centauri is the largest globular cluster in the Milky Way galaxy and home to about 10 million stars. At a diameter of roughly 150 light years, it can be seen as a fuzzy star roughly near the Southern Cross. In telescopes, it appears like very delicate lace, and it takes skill to use peripheral vision to see it, but it's worth the effort. The eternal rival of Omega Centauri is a bit more clear in the telescope, but elusive. 47 Tucane globular cluster hides in the constellation of the exotic bird, the Tucan. But once again, the Southern Cross can help. If you imagine that crooks could also look like a giant arrowhead, you will see it pointing left to a star on the other side of its declination circle. The star in question is Akinar, laying at the end of the river Eridanus that comes all the way from Orion. Our imaginary trajectory following the arrowhead takes us in between two fuzzy clouds, two-thirds from Crooks towards Akenar. These are the Magellanic Clouds, the famous galaxies passing by our Milky Way. 47 Tucane is located on the right-hand side of the axis, sitting beside the small Magellanic Cloud. But this globular cluster belongs to us, albeit on the outskirts of the Milky Way, roughly 15,000 light years away from Earth and 120 light years across, in ideal conditions, should look almost the size of the full moon. The astrophotographers of the southern skies have a great debate each year trying to prove which globular cluster is more beautiful than the other, Omega Centauri or 47 Tucane. Which side are you on? And talking about the full moon, the other attractions of the sky here in the Southern Hemisphere in September are, of course, the planet and the moon. In Maori, the moon is called Marama, which literally can mean the white, ma, light, ma, coming from the sun, Terra. The harbinger of the spring is a supermoon. A supermoon happens when the full moon coincides with when the moon is closest to Earth, also known as perigee. Supermoons occur every 14th full moon. The opposite of a supermoon is a micromoon. And the planets, Mercury, Firo in Maori, and Saturn, Pararao, are small but bright in the evening sky. At the beginning of the month, Mercury is making its best evening sky appearance of the year, low in the west. Cream-colored Saturn is northwest of the zenith at dusk and midway down the western sky by late evening. Brilliant Venus, Copure Reata, it's the morning star for Maori and rises in the east two hours before the sun. A telescope shows 
Earth-sized Venus shining as a thin crescent from 60 million kilometers away. On 21st of September, Venus displays its greatest illuminated extent as the morning star. This means that for the next several mornings, our morning star Venus will be shining at or near its greatest brilliancy. This concludes our Jodcast for September from Space Place at Castro Observatory. To finish, I have chosen a beautiful Maori Kōrero from the book Song of the Old Tides by Barry Brailsford, which depicts exactly how I felt when I started learning about the Southern Hemisphere sky. Everything is not always as it seems. Assume nothing. Assumptions readily close the door on all that is and might be. The open mind sees beyond the breaking wave to the distant shore. It takes the longer view and sees more. And as the Maori say, Efitia nana fetuoterangi, the stars are shining in the sky, ko takoto akene ko papatuanuku, whilst Mother Earth lays beneath. Kiakaha and clear skies from the space place at Carter Observatory in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Thanks for that, Haratini. And now, I would like to say on to feedback, but unfortunately we've received no posts, no email, and no Facebook messages. I suspect this is because just about everybody is on vacation. Well, if everybody's on vacation, then we expect postcards next month. So please send your holiday postcards next month. Thanks for the likes, and thank you for all the retweets and favorites. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. At Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. At Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. At Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. Thanks to Dr. Chris Gordon for the interview. The editors were George Bendo, Benjamin Shaw, and Charlie Walker. The producer was Andy LeClerc. Until next time, jod on. Jod on.